0: welcome to the bro novo podcast the podcast that models healthy communication for men empowering them to start the journey of self-work now here's your host thomas pierce <laughs> Welcome, everyone, to this week's episode of the Bro Nouveau podcast. My guest this week is Connor Sullivan. On the professional side, he is the Vice President of Client Excellence at the Endurance Group. Uh, the Endurance Group is a consulting firm, maybe we can call it, from my understanding. Maybe a few ways to describe it, but um, it's the world's first social capital company uh, based up in Maine, and essentially the team leverages... Um, genuine relationships to amplify business growth for their clients, which is a very interesting topic. And uh, welcome to the podcast, Connor.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: For sure. It's my pleasure. So uh, have you been on a podcast before? Uh,
1: just one other time. Um, I am a podf- podcast aficionado. I've listened to yours before, Thomas. Um, but I, I definitely <laughs> nice. love the platform. I love the idea of long form. Um, I am a former high school English teacher, um, and I have used podcasts in my class before, um, so I definitely enjoy the medium.
0: That's cool. What, uh, what to you makes a good, a good podcast episode?
1: Hmm. Um, I'd say you know, obviously, I think what I've found listening to many different hosts and, uh, you know, networks and whatnot over the years. I found that podcasts hosts that can ask very, you know interesting, insightful questions. I find sometimes in mainstream media today, the questions are for lack of better terms, somewhat layups, <laughs> and they allow the person to basically offer a pre um, thought of answer. Where I felt like the best podcasts are the ones where it feels like a normal conversation, and sometimes the host themselves doesn't even know where the conversation's going, <laughs> mostly, and it just feels natural. It feels like you're at a, you know, in a living room and a sitting on a couch with these people. And uh, my wife makes fun of me because sometimes I'll tell them, "Oh, I gotta go hang out with my friends when I go listen to a podcast." So <laughs> I think the ones where I actually feel like I'm, you know, in the room with them having a genuine conversation makes the best time.
0: Nice. I love that. And what are, what are your go-tos?
1: I'm a big fan of the ringer podcast network. Mm -hmm. Um, I am a huge Boston sports fan. So Bill Simmons, the founder of the ringer (laughs) is one of my go-tos. He has a lot of great sports podcasts. Um, he also does a number of, you know, pop culture and political podcasts as well. Um, I'm a huge fan of the game Survivor. (laughs) I've actually always thought um, (laughs) that maybe my social capital experience would help me out there one day. So happy to chat about Survivor if you're a fan. Um, Anyone listening as well. Um, And then I also just enjoy genuine political podcasts like The Daily, things like that.
0: Uh, Nice. My go to for political ones are the 538 Politics Podcast. Okay. I haven't really listened
1: to that one, but I've heard of it.
0: And then. the Economist has a American politics podcast called Checks and Balance. Okay, that is very good. Great, and they good do. To I'll add my list. Yeah, 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 yeah. I try to, um, I try to broach items of policy and politics too, just because it's it's more of an interest for me. But I think it's important to just put out there normal people talking about it in a non like combative way. Because just like you were saying, a lot of the images and videos and content that's put out there is, is extremely combative conversations about politics. Yes. Um, you know, and, and even just the whole idea of framing this as we have a flawed, but largely successful institution or institutions that have created this present day and like let's my orientation is like let's not blow everything up <laughs> right now like let's look at ways to make feasible changes that aren't just kind of dragging our feet and i don't know it's it's fascinating i want to actually learn more about the history of the congress because is this normal is this a normal Stalemate to be in for the last 10 years. Is this, has this happened before in history? What are the trends that come up before it changes? You know, that, that type of thing, because it could be cyclical.
1: Yeah. No, I mean, again, as I said, I'm a former high school English teacher, but one of the reasons I chose to teach english as opposed to history was i always felt like being an english teacher i could talk about history (laughs) but being a history teacher i couldn't always talk about you know literature media things like that so english was always the perfect subject for me because like you i'm a huge history buff um but i always like looking at the context of other literature and other texts as well
0: i feel like english teachers have this very um romantic view of life (laughs) What, what do you make of that statement?
1: Um, so it's funny. <laughs> so my wife is also a high school English teacher. Um, that's how nice. we met. Um, she is, I think, definitely much more that stereotype you're talking about. You know, she teaches the classics, Romeo and Juliet, Catcher in the Rye, Gatsby. Um, and I think that lends itself to more of this romantic view that you mentioned. Um, typically, in my class, I've taught much more about argument and rhetoric uh, which I'd say, actually, my students would tell you makes me a lot more jaded. Um, I'm constantly asking huh. them, you know, why did the author, why did the speaker choose to do this in this way? What are they trying to get you to understand? What are they trying to get you to think? Um, and obviously, those conversations can turn a little more cynical than the traditional high school English class. So I will say um, I've had students that have had both my wife and I, and they've definitely mentioned that to me on a few occasions.
0: <laughs> Interesting. I had a a great exercise uh, for a high school English class where I think it was called the, the it was called the writers five. Okay, Mr. Coyle, and you had to write five sentences. The first bit of the sentence had to be a piece of biographic data okay. from the author's life. And the second sentence had to point to where exactly in the text it influenced hmm. something in the text. And the idea behind that is to understand the text. One has to understand the author and their history, their motivations, their persuasions, etc.
1: You're you're on it. I'm sure um Mr. Coyle taught soapstone, which is my always go-to acronym with my students. Uh, you know, I taught AP English language, which is all about that. Um, you need to understand where the author is coming from and what they understand before you can truly understand their, what they're writing about, and what their text is.
0: Mm-hmm. And so how do you select books to read in your personal life now?
1: Hmm. Um, I'd say, you know, to be honest, in my line of work now coming from an education background and I'm moving into business, I feel like I've had to become a, a self-taught MBA in terms. Mm-hmm. So I've definitely had to do a lot more business reading that I've done in my uh, past life. Um, so definitely a lot of books about business, how to, um, you know, leadership things along that nature. Um, so certainly on the nonfiction side, um, as you know, obviously I'm still a, a fiction fan at heart. One of my favorite authors of all time is Ann Patchett. Um, so anytime she has a book come out, I drop everything to read that. <laughs> um, so I'd say, you know, definitely a mix of business, um, you know, learning, uh, experiences, but also my passion for literature still comes through.
0: Yeah. How was that transition from education to business?
1: Yeah. You know, I, um, uh, so I went to college for education. I'd always wanted to be a teacher. My mom was a teacher growing up. That's what I wanted to do. Um, after college, I joined Teach for America. Um, Not because I needed their, you know, help getting a teaching degree, because I actually already had my teaching license, but because I was really interested in working with a group of people that were interested in education, but also as in education as a social justice movement. Um, And I thought that Teacher America would be the best place to do that. Um, So after through Teacher America, um, I got my first job in education at Achievement First Hartford High School uh, in Hartford, Connecticut. Um, I taught there for four years, um, really enjoy the experience. Um, you know, that's what I always wanted to do. Definitely, uh, more difficult than I could ever have imagined, but also more rewarding than I could ever have imagined. Um, I decided to take a little bit of a break from the charter school, urban, um, you know, school world, um, after my wife and I got married and we decided to go down to South America for two years. Um, And I actually taught in Cali, Colombia, at an international school. Um, So I got to see what education looks like in a different country. Um, And I was certainly... um, (laughs) uh, Culture shock is an understatement, um, I'll say. You know, all my students spoke English. I taught high school English just like I would in the United States. Um, But as soon as the class ended, they were speaking in Spanish and teaching me about Colombian culture. Um, Unfortunately, uh, the pandemic hit uh, while we were down there. So I actually taught my students in Columbia, virtually from my in-laws living room from March through June 2020. Um, as you can imagine, <laughs> that is not what I signed up for to be- when I became a teacher. I hated yeah. teaching virtually. Um, to be honest, I was already kind of thinking about trying something new, um, but the pandemic certainly made that decision a lot easier. Um, my dad uh founded the endurance Group about 20 years ago and he always told me if I wanted to take a shot at business that he'd welcome me with open arms so I decided to take the plunge um the one thing I you know my I've always thought about you know the differences between education and business are you know, I, I will say it does feel a little lower stakes in some ways because when I was teaching, <laughs> you know, I felt like sometimes yeah. students' lives were in my hands uh, in a lot of ways. I think yeah. especially when I was teaching at Hartford, um, I definitely felt like there was a lot mm-hmm. of pressure to make sure that I was helping students hit the goals that they wanted. Um, business is obviously different pressure. Um, obviously, I want to make my dad proud and help the family business and help my clients um, but definitely, it's certainly a different type of pressure than I felt in education. Um I do feel like there's a lot of translatable skills um my uh, you know coworkers and colleagues always make fun of me because my organization they say is at a level eleven. <laughs> um I am an inbox zero person through and through, and I learn that in education nice. because if you are not organized you will fail miserably. Um, So I definitely feel like that's translated. <laughs> I think a lot of my, you know, skills in writing, skills in communication, um, skills in professional development um, have obviously been helped by my time in education. Um, I still have thought about going back one day. You know, I, I wouldn't say I've ever closed the door in education. As I said, my wife's still a high school English teacher and sometimes she'll come home saying, Oh, I have this lesson tomorrow. This is what I'm thinking of doing. And I'll, say, hey, you know, you could try it this way. <laughs> um, <laughs> and sometimes that's met um, with better feedback than others. Um, but, you know, I definitely yeah. still miss it. And I, you know, I definitely respect all the work that teachers do. And um, I hope to maybe, you know, maybe I'll try it again one day.
0: Well, that's lovely. It sounds like you and your wife have a lovely relationship to be able to move abroad and take that adventure together, It's that's awesome.
1: Yeah, you know, we definitely, um, so it's funny, we taught at the same <laughs> school for six years. Um, so if you definitely want to test your relationship, uh, become co-workers with them. Um, and if you really want to test it, go on a job interview with them. Um, because we, uh, when we applied to go teach in Columbia, we actually had an interview together. Because the way the international school fair worked you needed to basically only apply to schools that had two positions that you and your spouse um would have openings for. So then you had to interview Interesting. together. Um so yes, That's we now hilarious. have a, a one and a half year old so hilarious. I think our days of international travel are on hold for the time being. Um never say never, but I think uh we definitely enjoyed our time before kids.
0: Nice, man. Okay. So I wanna I wanna learn more about the Colombian experience, but to bring it back to Hartford, you had mentioned teaching with a social justice impact or influence. So, and was this was this now still through Teach for America?
1: Yeah. So the way Teach for America works is you make a commitment to teach in a school for two years. Um, I decided to stay past my in- initial two-year commitment, another two years. So technically, my first two years were through Teach for America, and then my two years were, you know, I was an alum. Um, so I still wasn't very involved in the organization. I mentored other teachers, took part in their professional development sessions, but technically I was an alumni in those next two years.
0: Mm-hmm. And what were the social justice elements that made it different than if you just say applied cold off off the street?
1: Yeah. So I think one, you know, Teach for America is really really. Um, interested in putting teachers in schools that obviously have students uh, from at risk populations. Um, and I think, you know, they, they want to make sure that their student, their teachers have the largest impact they possibly can. So, you know, what teacher America really does in their training is they focus on obviously giving teachers the tools to teach students on a daily basis, how to make lesson plans, how to make unit plans, how to design assessments. Um, fortunately, I did have a lot of that background from my college background. So what I really got out of the Teach for America program was more the conversations about the community that I was entering. I'd never lived in Hartford, Connecticut before, and I needed to learn a lot about the history of the city, um, learn about the people that live there, learn what it meant to teach in that community and the resources that were available both to me and to my students. Um, And Teach America did a really great job of that. And that's what I really got out is what is my job to make sure I'm providing the best education in all senses of the world to my students. It's very easy to clock in, clock out, teach your lesson, but what does it actually mean to be a teacher for social justice? And I think that's what I truly got out of the Teach for America program.
0: Mm, interesting. So, is is an altruistic motivation, it sounds like, or uh, wanting to do good. Um, and then when there, was it, were there any kind of like political ideologies? maybe it's a strong word, but political ideologies you know pushed on you as part of that or yeah you know i mean I think more... teacher
1: america obviously has an interesting reputation um because they for the most part again i'm an exception to this rule put people in classrooms that have no background or education whatsoever um Again, so I I will say, <laughs> yeah, as you can imagine, that comes with a lot of issues. Um, if you're all of a sudden telling someone go teach high school English and you have no skill set to actually do that, can't even read. Um, so I will say that obviously <laughs> is something that uh I you know had that had that background, so I felt very fortunate there. But I can also say, no matter what your background is, your first year of teaching is really really hard, <laughs> and I still had a very, very difficult time there. Not because of my preparation, just because it was my first job as a professional and just teaching is Mm. really, really difficult. It doesn't matter how much you're reading a textbook or practice in front of your peers, practice from a mentor. It's always different when you're in front of kids.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Well, good. And uh, what did you, you know, what, what did you learn about yourself in that first, I guess those first four years that Surprised you, or things about yourself you had no idea were there you know that you that you learned through teaching,
1: yeah, you know I think um obviously i so I grew up in Falmouth, Maine, um which is one of the most typically least diverse <laughs> places i'd say in the country um in terms of right racial diversity at least <laughs> um and I think obviously going to a school where there were no students that were white, all students were of color. Most of them, um, came from Caribbean backgrounds, um, Jamaica being the most popular. Um, so I think I definitely needed to learn about, you know, what it meant to have white privilege, what it meant to be a white Cisgendered straight male specifically, um, and all the benefits that afforded me in my life that I wasn't quite aware of before I had that experience. So I'd say a lot of it was diversity, equity, inclusion, uh, learnings, um, that I had during my time there and something that I still carry with me today. It's something I think a lot about in my work at the endurance group when we talk about social capital. How does that mix with diversity, equity, inclusion? Mm -hmm. Um, and it's something that we've, we talk about as a team. Um, and thinking about, you know, what is our role, um, in those discussions.
0: Yeah, for sure. And then what were your, um, peers like, what were the teachers at the school like?
1: Yeah, I'd say, um, you know, uh, so I worked at Achievement first. So just to be clear for those that are still learning the Teach for America world, Teach for America places students in existing schools. Um, so not every single teacher in that school, thank goodness, is a Teach for America core member. Um, most, you know, a lot of the <laughs> teachers there um, are, you know, well experienced. Um, so I was very fortunate to have a lot of mentors um, when I was there. Um, you know, a lot of teachers there were from Hartford, born and raised, um, and, you know, had a, had a lot in common with our students, which I think was really helpful um, for our students to obviously have mentors and leaders that they could identify with very helpful for me because they could provide me a mentorship and understandings to under make and greatly enhance my ideas. Um, There were a number of other people like me that were Teach for America alumni or current core members um, that obviously I could speak to, you know, more for an emotional um help when I needed ideas Mm -hmm. and how to better identify with my students, become a better teacher, become a better person. Um, So I'd say it was a pretty mixed um teacher body. Um, You know, I think uh, as my time went on there, I'd say they, the hiring team really tried to do a better job of bringing people in that knew the community well just because they saw how well the students responded to that. Um, and I know that's continued since I've left. So I've been very proud of my uh, time at Achievement First and I still think of the organization really highly.
0: Nice. Yeah, that's awesome, man. That's I'm sure you made a huge impact. And even if it was just, I'm sure it was more than one, but it's kind of the old saying, right? Like even if it was just one kid who... <clears throat> got motivation, inspiration, confidence, skills, useful skills, whatever it is, you know, as long as, as long as you had that impact, right? Yeah. That's, you know, I think obviously uh,
1: I look back at how I taught in my first year of teaching and I honestly feel bad for some of those kids because they certainly didn't get my best work. <laughs> um, but you know, that's how it goes. You know, um, I definitely yeah. feel like by my last year and especially teaching in Columbia, I was much more hitting my stride and I think naturally I also was able to make stronger relationships with those students because I wasn't necessarily worried about what I was going to teach the next day. Um, so I right. think because I was not as concerned about that, I was able to develop stronger relationships with my students. So that I'd say sense. especially Relax Columbia, a little bit. Um I hit the right balance. Um, and I was able to really yeah. develop very strong relationships with my students while still delivering strong curriculum and, you know, some of those um, – you know, cultural competencies as well. They're so important.
0: Yeah, so I just looked up Cali. Looks like it's south since south and west of uh Bogota yeah, maybe. Yeah.
1: It's the third largest city in Colombia. Um I'd be very surprised if any of your listeners have been there because it's not the most touristy place in Colombia. Um there's a lot of cities that people might go to first.
0: <laughs> and uh did you did you go in with any salsa? Actually that's also um Spanish, like any like high, high school Spanish, Spanish or
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so please don't make me go into Spanish on this podcast. I got very I want, very I good want. at what we call taxi <laughs> Spanish and restaurant Spanish. So yeah. I can get in a taxi and tell them where I need to go. I can go to a restaurant, I can order well. I got to the point where I could pay my cell phone bill, talk to a cable company. Nice beyond that, unfortunately, I, I didn't get as much Spanish. And I think honestly that was because I was down there with my wife when we were right. at school and we were at home, we were speaking English. Um, there were we did have a lot of friends down there that were single and I think they were much more able to integrate themselves into the you know Colombian culture, the Spanish language than I was um obviously I'm very happy to go down there with my wife I don't have any regrets (laughs) on that and in terms (laughs) but I think um you know obviously the the Spanish language we didn't quite develop as much as I think I would have liked
0: yeah yeah well hey I mean just going is amazing and uh yeah it's cool I was in I was in the Philippines with my girlfriend last year oh cool for um for her work and so yeah Tagalog is the is the national language there. Um, really only in the Philippines, uh, oftentimes only spoken around the capital. Like it's not spoken equally in all regions of the country because there are, I think, there are over 6,000 languages in the Philippines. Um, maybe less than that. 6,000 islands, hundreds of languages at least. And so I kind of went in with a similar... Well, I went in very like... I remember I was telling one of my buddies, I was like, over there, he's like, You're not you're not gonna learn Tagalog," And I was like, Yes, I am. You don't know me. <laughs> and I absolutely didn't learn it. Because everyone speaks English really well. Yeah. Um But I'm back in my Spanish game here in the States. I've got my uh weekly classes going, so oh, hope to great. use it. Yeah, no, Duolingo
1: and all those are really, really important. I will say if you truly want to learn. Highly recommend you go to Cali because not many people speak English there at all. <laughs> um, so if you really want to practice, Cali is the place to go. Um, but, you know, okay, I, cool. Columbia, I highly recommend, um, you know, anyone listening to go visit. It's a beautiful country. Um, the It's a beautiful culture um, as well. Just very warm, welcoming. And uh, I can't speak highly enough about my experience there.
0: Awesome. <laughs> okay. So... To your work now, social capital. Um, if I'm going to be jaded, <laughs> this sounds like how to get what you need from your network without rubbing them the wrong way. <laughs> True or false?
1: I'm going to say false, but I completely understand where you're coming to on that. Um, on that round, yeah, you know, it's interesting. So we we define social capital as like those attributes, those experience that bond you to someone else, your family, your neighborhood, your alma mater, your past work, your heritage, volunteer interests, anything that helps you form a bond with someone else. Um, and what we really you know, believe at the endurance group is that that social capital is something that's actually not utilized and discovered enough in this world. You know, I think we talked a little bit at the beginning about how it's so easy to find yourself in an echo chamber um and ironically one of the best ways to break that echo chamber in today's world are to reach out to some people you have things in common with but not everything in common with it's very possible you might connect with someone from your alma mater that has a vastly different political view than you do um so you know what we really believe is the key to both personal as well as professional and business growth is to expand and diversify your network. Now, as you said, sometimes that can lead to business, um, but oftentimes it simply leads to a better understanding. um, And even if they don't necessarily need your services right there at the present time, they could be a great connection for you down the road. Um, So what I've always said is, it's always important to network and, you know, meet new people and see where opportunities lead you.
0: Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Bro Nouveau podcast. Please leave the show a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To enjoy full-length video episodes, head over to YouTube. You can search Bro Nouveau or simply follow the link in the episode description below. If you or someone you know would make a fascinating guest for this kind of conversation, you can reach me via email. That address is contact at com. Thank you for listening and enjoy the rest of the show. Totally. Walk me through an engagement, if you will, at a high level. I hire you or the endurance group to help me, let's say, for example, use my network to find podcast guests.
1: Okay. Yeah. So, you know, what we would do first is create what we call a social capital inventory for you. So I would look at you, but then obviously, you know, we'd want to look at other people that maybe you work with that are your partners, contractors, anyone else in your very tight Bro Bro Novo podcast network, I'd look at all of their publicly available social media, LinkedIn being the most popular, because that's where most people put some of this information. Um, We'd look at, as I said, where everyone went to school, where everyone used to work, where everyone volunteered, and we put that together into a report for you. And we analyze that report. And we'd look at, okay, what are some of the strong social capital assets that you have? Um, then what we do is we work with you to figure out what podcast guests, podcast guests are you looking for? What types of individuals? And if you told me, Hey, Connor, I'm really looking for VPs of marketing at major brands. We would make that whole list of VPs of marketing at these major brands. We would look at where all those people went to school, used to work, volunteered. We'd put that into our database. And then essentially we'd send you a relationship map. And we'd be able to tell you the best way in to those potential podcast guests and who in your organization has the best way in. You might have the best way in to some because you both graduated from the same alma mater. Someone else might have the same way, uh, best way in because they both volunteer for Relay for Life. Other people might have the best way in because they used to work for Google, right? We basically figure that out. Once we create that relationship map for you, um, some people simply take that and they do the outreach themselves. Um, other people will actually contract us to do the outreach for them. So we'd actually take over your LinkedIn and reach out <laughs> to those people um, on your behalf. We'd schedule the meetings for you, um, you know, put them into your CRM if that's of interest, uh, et cetera. Other people look for more of a soft approach. So we'll help them create pay-per-click ad campaigns so, for mm-hmm. example, there'd be an ad um, of the Google campus, and it would say, hey, are you looking to connect with other Google alums? Click here to schedule a meeting with Google alum John Smith and discuss um, your potential interest oh, wow. in the podcast. And that, pod, that ad would be seen by anyone that's a Google alum that's in your quote-unquote prospect profile for being a podcast guest. Wow, you'll
0: do display ads for an individual... To their target audience.
1: Yeah, and the idea there is that, uh, you know, obviously, when you're scrolling through these social media sites, you're getting hit every day with, frankly, the same type of ads, (laughs) you know, that your value proposition hits you in the face, and then you scroll past it. What we found is in our social capital work is that seeing that alumni, that alma mater campus, seeing the picture of Google seeing the Relay for Life logo, that means something to you because it's a part of your social capital. It's a part of who you are. You're much more likely to stop and actually read the description and potentially reach out for that meeting than if it was just another ad. Hey, come join my podcast. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, it's basically those are our three main services. We call it relationship expansion, commonality reports, um, and pay-per-click ads.
0: Fascinating. And let's say that I didn't have a specific goal right now. I just wanted a survey of my potential capital assets. Is that a possibility too? Yeah. I mean, that's, so a, that's example, the like
1: social capital inventory, um, inventory that we do. Again, I will say we typically work with organizations because... What we found is, you know, LinkedIn has a lot of great tools already that would allow you specifically to find your connections. Um, what LinkedIn doesn't do right now is allow you to evaluate your entire organization and figure out who in your organization has the best way in. So LinkedIn, for to make it in very layman's terms, is one to many. We believe in many to many um, mm-hmm. in our work.
0: Awesome. That's that's really that's really cool, and one of the things I would imagine you have to help people with is getting over the fear of reaching out to people, or that
1: (laughs) resistance. Yes. So, a lot of the work we do, and this is actually mandatory if you work with us, is you need to to use our consulting and coaching services. Um, You, you know, mentioned in the beginning, oh, isn't this just a way to get something out of someone? (laughs) <laughs> we are very, very clear in our coaching and consulting. If you go in to a meeting that you're supposed to be networking and talking about your time at Harvard, and you all of a sudden have a pitch deck that's all ready to go, that's not going to go over well. <laughs> so we teach people how do you actually have a real networking conversation? How do you talk about your time working at Waterhouse Cooper, How do you talk about your time volunteering with uh, food on wheels, meals on wheels? And then transitioning into business, Asking if there's a way to move forward in an authentic way. How do you maintain authenticity in these social capital relationships? Um, and it's one of the biggest, and I think, the important part of our services. Um, because as you said, a lot of people don't feel comfortable doing that work. Especially if you're not naturally in sales or marketing. A lot of the people we work with have never done a sales call in their life. And we need to teach them, you're not doing a sales call here. You're having a networking call. And how do you, you know, potentially move that networking call into sales? And, you know, maybe you wouldn't be the one that leads that call. Maybe you ask them if they'd be willing to meet with someone on your sales team. Um, so, yes, it's mm. a, I will say that's, that's where my teaching background really comes to <laughs> come into play, designing those sessions and whatnot.
0: Totally. Because it, it it sounds like a first sales call. It's kind of, here's what you do, here's what I do. Is there value in us collaborating And one of the things that I keep in mind for any introductory call I do is try to present value for them. Even if I'm making an ask, Mm -hmm. make sure they understand and I communicate clearly, this is what I can provide. This is what you will get from this experience, rather than just me being like, hey, Connor, like... (laughs) I need X, Y, Z. Yeah,
1: I mean, I think that's also part of it because, you know, that's, again, the value of social capital, right? You're much more willing to, you know, help someone out. And that goes both ways if you have this thing in common. Um, And that's really where our value prop comes from is it's developing an authentic relationship. And, you know, once again, we make sure our clients understand this doesn't mean you're going to get a deal tomorrow, but this does mean you're going to add someone very valuable to your network that maybe could be a big advocate for you or offer you a strong opportunity going forward, you know, um, and you also have a much higher chance of getting a door open. Um, our success rates have found that if you reach out with a social capital connection to someone on LinkedIn, your average acceptance rate is about 33% where if you reach out cold, I'm sure everyone on listening to his podcast has gotten the high. I'd like to add you to my network. <laughs> uh, <laughs> LinkedIn, you're looking at about 2%. Um, so obviously you know, those numbers speak for themselves, but then even more importantly, it's adding that authenticity um, to it, which I think people might very much appreciate it in uh, this world today. Totally.
0: And I like this idea just because it's connection and that's, very valuable both for business, but also for personal happiness and state of mind, right? Well-being generally because connections are hugely important and we're coming out of a COVID period where everyone's been locked down, isolated, afraid to see each other and all this stuff. And so, yeah, I I love it, man. I think, I think uh, it sounds like a great service and it sounds like, It also sounds like it will actually benefit people's lives because the uh, psychology data shows just interactions in general are good for us. Yep. And there's a great study about commuters in a train and the uh, control group, test group, uh, they both had similar commutes. They take that train often. They normally just work on the train control group. Uh, And they asked both groups before, if you had to interact with someone on the train, how would that go? You know, Mm. and the perception was largely negative. Strangers, I don't want to talk to them, distracting me, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so both groups tested kind of negatively on that, or the perception was, was low control group. uh, Didn't interact with anyone. And then the test group, did interact. They had to, they were instructed to talk to someone on the Mm. train. And then both people, both groups were, took an exit poll essentially of their mood and how they felt after the commute. And the test group that had talked to someone was much more positive, reported being in a much better mood and reported being just as productive as they normally were.
1: Yes. Very small example. (laughs) I'm I'm not surprised at (laughs) all. But yes, that's literally, I'd love to see that study. You should have sent it to me after this. Um, But yeah, I love looking at research like that. Um, McKinsey came out with an article last August that really talked about how social capital has suffered since COVID. Very few people are reaching out to their networks, reaching out to new people like they once did. And obviously, there are some really very real reasons for that. It was dangerous <laughs> to reach out to new people, um, you know, and technology, ironically, made it a lot easier. I think, you know, meetings on Zoom became a lot more popular. Um, I think people were more willing to take those meetings, but I still think that fear factor uh, really in- impacted people. So I'm hoping as we, you know, hopefully start to turn the page, um that people keep those ideas about, hey, it's important to reach out to new people. And there's nothing wrong with having a zoom call. But you know, one thing we're also talking to our um clients about now is getting back to conferences. Um, those in-person interactions Mm. in the hotel elevator at a conference can be super impactful. Um, you know, setting up meetings via, you know, LinkedIn email before the conference and actually have a time to sit down for lunch at the conference. Um, so I'm definitely excited to see where we're going. Um, and I'm, you know, hopefully, uh, we can be a big part of that. For sure. And how, um,
0: what's the what's the path forward for the, for the business? Because is it scalable? Is it something that you guys, your family have a set revenue target and you want to keep it there? Do you want to sell? Do you want to pass it on to your kids? You know, what's the, you know, obviously I'm
1: working with my dad has definitely been a rewarding experience. I've learned a lot from them. We have definitely had to, uh, evaluate our relationship because sometimes we'll be having a <laughs> Sunday family dinner and it turns into a business meeting and we have to say, okay, we're stopping. Um, yeah. One yeah, thing yeah. we're really excited about now is can we transform our ideas of helping businesses evaluate their social capital to helping individuals? Uh, evaluate their social capital. So one thing we're working on right now, um, stay tuned for more, <laughs> um, is basically allowing individuals to capture all the data available for them online, capture your Facebook, your Instagram, your LinkedIn, your company data, and potentially s- provide that data to companies in exchange for compensation. Um, and the idea okay. there would be you know, it's changing the paradigm of companies yeah. trying to, you know, potentially buy third party data to this idea that could we potentially change the paradigm that people are actually providing their data to brands, providing their social capital to brands in exchange for something. Um, and then also adding these community aspects. Could we create these online communities for people that have things in common that they find through their data? Um, so that's our that's the vision of where we're going. Um, So we're definitely looking to expand into the B2C market, Um, but uh, stay tuned for more.
0: (laughs) Nice. I love that. Yeah. It should be an opt in rather than an opt out scenario. Right. With that data,
1: you're hitting the nail on the head. You know, that's what I've just been thinking a lot about lately when I have all these people saying, Oh, can I track your cookies? I'm like, well, wait a minute. (laughs) What am I getting out of this? You know, Um, that's definitely um, uh, what I'm excited about. And that's what a lot of our, tech people are working on now, which is pretty exciting.
0: Nice, man. Awesome. And then uh, another question I ask almost every guest on the Bro Nouveau podcast is about masculinity and how do you define being a good man?
1: Hmm. One of my... um, I'd say biggest challenges I've definitely had, especially being in college, was when I was an education major. Um, the vast majority of people in my classes in college identified as women. Um, I was always mm-hmm. one of the only men um, in the class. And a lot of my friends that were men um, were in the traditional masculine roles. They were in business. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I think what I've found through those experiences is the importance uh, of being open, being empathetic. Um, And, you know, really going against what some of these traditional masculine roles are. So I think, you know, what it means to be a good man is being honorable, having integrity and showing empathy to others, um, even if it means going against some of these typically masculine gender roles. Love it.
0: Yeah. Thanks, Thanks for sharing that. Honorable with integrity and empathetic.
1: They don't always go together, which is a shame. Um, but I definitely hope. Uh, <laughs> I hope in my time as a teacher, and hopefully my time as a business leader, we can we can slowly start changing that.
0: Yeah, yeah. There's so many scenarios in business, particularly where integrity is very easy to lose. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, it's also probably something you share with your clients too. Like in sales, being able to say, actually, you know what, my product or service isn't the right fit for you does build a lot of credibility because instead of just taking the money and running, saying, hey, this isn't the right fit, I can point you in the direction of something that will help you more based on your specific needs. And that goes a long way.
1: Yeah. You know, I can tell you, um, we actually have a client right now. Um, they're in SureTech. SureTech. They were going after mutual insurance companies, and we did our job. We reached out to all the people that they wanted to talk to, and I basically had to go up to them and say, "Hey, I actually need to break up with you here," <laughs> um, which doesn't often happen in our line of work. Usually, it's like, "Oh, okay, what's more? What can I do for you now?" Like, we're done. Let's move on to the next thing. Where I know their company well now. I've gotten to know that um, you know my clients pretty well, and I know we did our job. And my hope is that by being open and honest with them that I think I've done the most I can do for you at this present moment, you know, uh, maybe they'll eventually pay that forward. If they do have a new target market one day, they'll keep us in mind. Maybe they have some clients or contractors um, that might be interested in working with us, but I'd much rather keep the relationship positive than try to stretch it out for more money. Um, I think that obviously goes along more with my values, but hopefully, um, you know, just a day of business integrity. For sure.
0: For sure. Awesome. All right, Connor. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure to learn about your personal, you know, personal journey to this moment and also your professional life. Um, is there anywhere you want to direct the audience to, to learn more about you and the work you're doing?
1: Sure. Yeah. Uh, the endurance Um, and look at, look me up on LinkedIn uh connor sullivan at the endurance group um as i'm sure you've learned on this podcast i love speaking to people and if our commonality is that we both enjoy listening to thomas that works for me so i'd be happy to chat
0: (laughs) (laughs) and then uh i'll also do a uh book recommendation do you have any books that you so i'll to, to give you more of a framework Yeah. A book you really enjoy. On
1: our website, we actually have a whole section of our recommended texts. Um, So I'll highly recommend Relationships to Infinity, uh, Art and Science of Keeping in Touch by Jason Levin. Um, That book really, really spoke to me about what it means to keep in touch, what it means to have a network, and obviously what it means to leverage your social capital. So if anything, I said today inspired you. I highly recommend you check out Jason Levin's book. Um it definitely really inspired me.
0: Perfect. All right, Connor. Thank you so much, man. It was a pleasure to speak with you.
1: Thanks, Thomas. Talk soon. Um, um, um,
0: um. Um um um, uh, 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 uh.